CBDCs, Central Bank Digital Coins. These are very interesting things that are being fast-tracked in terms of their implementation to everyday society. And I'm going to try to give a very simplistic explanation of what CBDCs are, what their value proposition is for central governments, and how you will be interacting with them. So very simply put, a CBDC or central bank digital coin is going to be a cryptocurrency that's distributed by respective central banks of respective countries, right? So obviously Canada is going to have its, you know, it's a CBDC. The U.S. is going to have its CBDC. China already has a CBDC in something called the gold back renminbi. So they already have a gold back cryptocurrency that can actually be utilized. It's, it's not free trading right now, but you can actually purchase it um, through like, I think that specialized process, but you actually have to like, no, it's not open to the public, but they do have an existing CBDC, right? That's in circulation. Um, and yeah, it's called the gold back renminbi. It's backed by gold. Very interesting. You should definitely look into it. Now, a CBDC has multiple uses for governments, right? Primarily, they would be trackability, programmability, and utilization in digital identity. So what do I mean by these, right? So when I say trackability, it means exactly that. Um, with a CBDC, central banks would basically be able to track how each dollar is being spent and they would even have the ability to see from which wallet it is being spent from and to. So they would have generalized visibility over all transactions that are occurring within their country or within their CBDC. And essentially, because a human being would not be able to actually go through that information, what you'd have is that you'd have a blockchain that you can utilize smart contract on and run algorithms on them so that you can do proper analytics and actually make use of the abundance of data that will be available to you. So the other thing I was talking about is programmability, right? So with a CBDC, what can occur as well is because it is the central bank centralized blockchain, right? They can basically determine the cryptocurrencies distributed can be only utilized in certain ways. So, for example, um, you know how in like welfare right now, people get food stamps. Well, you can have a CBDC that's basically programmed to only allow the user to purchase food with said CBDC. So programmability is another perceived value add as to how governments are looking at the value props of a CBDC to a government. Now, one of the last ways I've recently realized is would be a huge value proposition to governments as to utilizing CBDCs in a centralized blockchain is the value proposition a digital identity via your wallet can actually provide to a government, right? So the thing is right now, Every government, every central government is trying to move to digital, specifically with uh, um, identification, right? So like citizen identification, they're really trying to find a way to make it go digital, right? Because there is a perceived, okay, so they're, they're really trying to make it digital because there's, there's optimization and efficiencies by doing that, right? So the interesting thing about this, right, is basically, this is, it, so this is highly pertinent to cybersecurity right now. So a lot of fraud a lot of fraud is being perpetrated right now basically because it's very hard 
to we don't we don't have like a generalized digital identity process like for example like how how we have passports right so um you can't go into a you can't get on a plane in a lot of contexts without a visa and you can't get into a, onto a plane without a passport right so what they're trying to do is set up a similar system from a digital perspective right where we have a standardized identification process online that way you can get away from fraud and fix a lot of the issues caused in the cybersecurity world, right? So digital identity is actually a massively important thing that people are really trying to, um, really trying to uh, like perfect and implement as, as, as like a, as a, as a, as a, as a use, as a usable software, right? So basically the idea of it, I'll, I'll just reiterate again, is that you have a standardized digital identity, you use that as a confirmation to for, for you to enter credentialed areas, right? And because, if, if you if you have a credential digital identity that's part of a standardized infrastructure, then it would be very easy for you to implement that, right? Now, why, where I think this is interesting, right, is how like crypto wallets can play into this, right? So I'll give you the best example. There is a crypto wallet called ShakePay, right? So ShakePay is a Canadian company. Shout out to ShakePay, no free shout outs. Y'all gotta hit me up. Uh, but basically, for lack of a better term, ShakePay allows users to buy Ethereum and and uh, and Bitcoin, and for you to be, it also allows you to make payments amongst peers. And in some contexts, depending if somebody, if like a, let's say a vendor or like a, a, someone is actually utilizing a ShakePay terminal, you can even buy products utilizing that as well too, right? So, ShakePay, interestingly enough, has been able to have a bit more credence in how they've been able to operate because they've set up an existing KYC protocol. So know your customer protocol with the existing financial institutions in this company. So ShakePay uh, has agreed to report um, on the finance, report the financial transactions of its users to the major financial institutions. And because of that, they've allowed them to uh, have easy transactions between banks and this crypto wallet. So ShakePay is one of the only crypto wallets that allows you to basically fund via e-transfers. And again, I'll say that happens because ShakePay decided from uh, decided to basically share their KYC protocol or to implement a KYC protocol, like a know your customer protocol and share that information with financial institutions, right? Now, understand though like from a government perspective how valuable that is right so if 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 you are if if governments are able to confirm who you are based on your crypto wallet right and your crypto wallet is is where you basically do all of your uh, uh commercial transactions your 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 private transactions right that is a really great way to have a really good idea as to who you are in terms of your digital identity. And this is why I'm saying I think it's like crypto wallets are going to be highly pertinent into the world of digital identities, right? Because instead of having, uh, let's say, a passport, right? If we had a standard infrastructure to utilize crypto wallets as a digital identity, well, anywhere you go utilize it, that person can pretty much know everything about you, right? Um I mean, obviously, they, they'd have to set up some process where you have like some some allowed amount of information being sent over to the respective like person who's requesting to confirm your identity, right? But that can all be done via smart contracts, right? Again, this is why I'm saying CBDCs are of huge value to governments. They're already in the process of implementation, and you should not be surprised, right? If you if you if you if you don't start seeing them happening, um, you know, in a store or at a bank near you. So recently, I discovered that possibly 
I may not be as like courageous and as uh, venturous as I thought I was because I've realized a lot of people have made quite literally a career off of knowing nothing about a subject that they're selling. Um, so to be frank, I've realized that uh, I do have a wealth of knowledge on some things, not a lot. In fact, in many aspects, I'm an idiot. And you shouldn't listen to anything that I'm saying because this is not financial advice. And I am not legally liable for any of this. Consult a financial advisor, right? Leave me alone. That's the best way to put it. But in any case, investing in the modern age, there are some things that have significantly changed from the traditional method that portfolio managers used to go about wealth management. So essentially, what would happen is that generally your average portfolio manager would basically just take all of your capital and throw it into 60-40 blend funds, right? So what I mean by that, right, is that it's, it's going to be either a mutual fund or an ETF um, or something, some fun product basically, right, um, um, that basically uh, uh, has 60% equities and 40% fixed income, right? So equities are stocks, fixed income are debt investments, right? So the idea there is that you have a diversified portfolio, um, that should be non-correlative, right? Because basically bonds should move in the opposite way of equities when either one goes up. Um, for various reasons, we're not going to go in in this conversation. But regardless, that's traditionally what a lot of the portfolio managers to do. And generally what a lot of portfolio managers would look for is about 8 to let's say 12% returns. Like let's say if a portfolio manager got 20% returns, that's a really good, that's a really good year, right? Um so, uh, okay, well, and, and I should elaborate on this in terms of literature. Um, technically speaking, a portfolio manager and a wealth management advisor are two different things because basically a portfolio manager can be a discretionary or non-discretionary advisor that actually, um, you know, deals with the actual financial products themselves. But you also have wealth management advisors that are purely just salespeople, right? And then you also have some more sophisticated like uh, portfolio managers that do alternative investing. Some guys are really good at commodities. Some guys are good at derivatives, da 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 you can go all, all the way down the rabbit hole. But regardless, um, going back to what I was trying to say before, generally what would happen is that if you're going to go to your average financial advisor, they would take you your money and they would put it into a 60-40 blend fund, right? Um, so what has happened though is that essentially because interest rates, right? So like central bank interest rates and specifically the federal bank of the United States, right? Because they have stayed so close to zero for so long, the whole fixed income market has basically not really been there because there's not been a buyer in the bond market. There's not been like us a, a lot of liquidity. There's not been a lot of liquidity in the bond market because not a lot of people are interested in buying bonds right now because they don't have like good returns. There's no point in really. There's no point in investing in them, especially um, if you're an asset manager. Uh, if the equity, if equities are outperforming bonds to like a large extent at this point now, because the unfortunate part now for um, that's really changed, and this is I guess like what I wanted to talk about is that the biggest difference I have noticed about uh, investing in 2022 versus let's say even 2010 is that uh, there like people are a, a lot less averse to risk, right? So I would say across the board from institutions to like, like you know, individual retail investors to, you know, wealth management advisors, I, like this is basically 
a lot of people have started incorporating a lot more risk into their strategy because basically that's the only way to get competitive returns because if you don't get get, get competitive returns, you're going to deal with capital flight, yada, 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 yada. So the unfortunate part about that is that basically you need this is two things. A, as an investor, you need to be a lot more comfortable with taking risk and B, you need to basically you need to have a longer time horizon to deal with the volatility that's going to be involved with such uh, you know risky investments, right? Because basically things can go really good and things can go really bad. The unfortunate part about that is like, let's say you're 60, 65 and you're retiring, is that your time horizon is not long. So you really cannot deal with a lot of volatility in the market because you need that money now in retirement, right? Especially the problematic part is that if you need income, right? So if you're an older person, uh, a lot of people basically used to, like the reason why people also used to invest into 60-40 uh, blend funds is that they would basically invest into uh, dividend paying equities uh, that essentially would be able to like pay income to an investor plus having the initial investment appreciate in price. Um, um, but because essentially now, uh, A, again, bond market's dead, but also B, that there's really no dividend paying names that are actually performing really well. Um, all the basically FANG stocks were greatly outperforming all the traditional like, you know, blue chip S&P stocks that were able to provide you, you know, good yields in terms of fucking like dividends, right? So anyhow, um, right now, everybody's more interested in risk. So you have to be more comfortable with volatility. Uh, so it's because things are going to go up, things are going to go down. So you really need to look at things from a long perspective. But the unfortunate part about that is that for you to have a long perspective is that you need to have time, Right. So again, that's like, these are things that I've seen significantly change. The other part here is that like at the end of the day, um, crypto is a real market and it's not going anywhere, right? Like I'm not trying to say all of these coins are going to be useful. In fact, for the most part, 99.99 are actually useless right now, right? I am saying there's going to be a major integration of blockchain technology into what I consider, quote unquote, legacy financial institutions. And reason being because they have to quickly implement blockchain technology into their infrastructure. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to compete and therefore adequately enforce black market exchanges, right? So um, yeah, you can have like, so for uh, to give you the perfect example, right? Like, like a Canadian regulator can say, oh, we don't want, you know, people from Ontario or people from Canada uh, um, uh, using this exchange to basically uh, like Qcoin, right? Uh, to to uh, trade on, right? But you can use a VPN and like you're basically good to go because as long as the platform doesn't have any KYC, you can easily invest in it, right? So it's a, it's a finicky thing for regulators right now to actually enforce. And I would also say mostly be, it's because a lot of like uh, the brain wealth is actually going to the private market because that's where it pays. So people who are smart and make money in crypto are not going to the public sector, right? They're going to the private sector. So in my opinion, the pri the public sector is going to, for a long time, really laggard in terms of making adequate policy. So I think in my opinion, two things are going to happen. A, there, there's going to be whole swaths of like the whole crypto and slash blockchain market that are going to be completely unregulated because regulators have no idea how to fucking, how, how to deal with it, right? Like for example, DAXs, which are decentralized exchanges. Like how do you, how do you enforce a decentralized exchange. It's like, I don't know, you have to figure that out, right? So, uh, and I think the other way that they're gonna do it is that they're gonna over-regulate, um, so, which means basically they're gonna put in some stupid policies that make no sense, uh, which in my opinion are actually gonna drive a lot of business to the black market, right? So 
Um, you know, I think these are things that are going to occur. I think one major thing that definitely people are going to have to integrate, um, not just into their strategy, but into their brain trust is an understanding of blockchain technology and mainstream crypto, uh, um, cryptos or like main, main, like you need to know your Ethereum. You need to know like your, your, your Bitcoin history. You need to know, uh, like, you know, the platforms, Binance, you need to understand like what DeFi is, right? I think like that's really going to make a difference for a lot of people going forward because if you're able to grasp these things right now this the thing is about the thing about like uh like the way you make money essentially is through inefficient markets right like that that and right now crypto is a very inefficient market and that's essentially why you're seeing so much stuff like ftx happening right and ftx is a completely other conversation because in my opinion i think that's a very sketchy story um but in any case um, I have spoken a lot and my mouth is dry. So here's the thing. Um, <clears throat> investing has gone through significant changes uh, over the last 10 years, um, over the last five years, and even specifically like a lot over the last two, three years for obvious reasons, right? Um, and it's interesting to me how much strategies have altered like completely like 180% um, in a short amount of time. And honestly, a lot of people probably have spoken about this, but I don't think they really do in a plain English manner. And I don't even know if this is plain English. <laughs> uh, but uh, basically, uh, I just want to go over a quick overlay as to what I think um uh, generally what like your average investor is doing these days and like how you invest uh in like 2020 versus 2010 right so uh like back in 2010 essentially generally what most people actually had exposure to were 60 40 fund products and what those were actually composed of were um it's either like an etf or a mutual fund uh that essentially was 60 percent equities and 40 percent bonds right um, the bonds would pay a yield and then also basically the equities would be uh, invested into dividend paying names, which, sorry, well, uh, yeah, so the capital uh, that was invested in equities would be put into dividend paying names that would also be able to pay out income. And uh, this was a really good, stable way for you to make money. Traditionally, a lot of people will basically make about like 8 to 12% returns. Um, if portfolio manager or a team was able to make like 20%, that's like a really, really good year, right? Um, so the thing is though, uh, for a myriad of reasons I don't want to go into, yield chasing becomes became something that was very popular. And what happened was that um, even like, not just like on, on like a retail investor level, but even on an institutional level to be competitive, um, a lot of firms that were basically managing money had to show large returns. Otherwise, what would happen is that the their clients would divest from them and then throw capital into, you know, firms that were outperforming them by a large margin, right? So what happened is that you saw a lot of portfolio managers, uh, you know, basically like start to integrate a lot more risk into their strategy. And I saw a lot of this essentially was through a lot of high growth uh, names that were tech based, right? So your things, right? So Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google or Alphabet, whatever you want to call it, and Spotify. Um, there's also other new ones you can consider too, like Tesla's obviously a huge one as well. Uh, but basically, these are companies that were pertinent to the tech space, and they're able to grow like to a ridiculous extent. So, I mean, like if you look at for <clears throat> so for some investors, like Tesla's gone up like like four hundred. So some people it's like a, like 
ridiculous ridiculous multiple on their initial investment right so it's just something that made sense for a lot of people to like to 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 sort of to integrate into their strategy and to a large extent right so people went for a more conservative traditional approach to essentially more of like a high-risk approach by going with these growthy names right now the issue with that is by basically by utilizing risk there's a couple of things that happen there's a high, there's obviously a higher chance of like a greater return, but there's also a higher chance of like more volatility. And it's also a greater chance of you losing money as well, too. So the thing about like taking on risk is that it only makes sense when you have a longer time horizon, because you can only really, in my opinion, be a long investor when sort of considering risk, right? Because you have to look at the long term outcome unless there's something that, you know, and you're able to, you know, make some money in the short term. But generally, if you're going to integrate risk into your strategy, you have to be a long investor. Now, the issue with that, right, is that basically a lot of people now are baby boomers and they're basically uh, entering um, retirement. And that's very problematic because they need very they need things that come from traditional investing, specifically income, which is provided through yield, through bonds, as well as dividends that were paid out through dividend paying names and equities. Right. So now that, you know, dividend paying equities aren't performing well. And in fact, some some of them are actually cut their dividends and also that basically the bond market is dead. So, you know, you're not really getting yield from there as well either. Right. Um, uh, people, people who have a shorter time horizon to make up for that have essentially started, uh, uh, doing yield chasing and have basically integrated a lot more strategy into their portfolios and invested into these like tech names. Now, the unfortunate part about that, right. Is that like, there's a couple of things and I, I don't really want to go into it, but basically what happens is that like, yeah, when you're older and you need your money, but you basically have more risk in your portfolio, you're going to deal with volatility. So there may come up a scenario, there may come a scenario, which is highly likely that, you know, your portfolio takes a downturn and you are not able to actually pull that income that you greatly need because you're in retirement and you're not making money anymore. Right. So that's the issue with a lot of investing these days in like 2022 is that it's really a young man's game. And like that's the best way to put it. Um, the other part is that I really do think people have to um, bet, get better educated A on specifically blockchain technology, but also crypto trading markets, right? So um, in my opinion, I do think that like pro- probably like 90 to 99% of like specifically like crypto coins are actually probably useless but i do think there will be a few that stay around and will actually be highly useful like ethereum and other coins that are capable of doing smart contracts are going to have a long-term use but i also think that in general that there's going to be some uh cryptocurrencies that are basically given a value and you know they will be traded and be able to provide people uh income as well too right so I think people really do need to get some sort of basis of education on crypto. I do think the market is shifting in that manner. But I do think right now, as your average investor, it is very important for you not just to like know, oh, Bitcoin is a thing. But like you need to understand the history of Bitcoin. You need to understand Ethereum. You need to understand the use of these crypto coins. You need to understand the history of each of these other. You need to basically do a lot more research. And there is a huge learning curve when learning anything pertinent to blockchain technology i will tell you that it is freaking gibberish it is difficult to understand but it is something you have to do in the modern age otherwise you will get boned right uh because the way people make a lot of money is through inefficient markets and the most inefficient market right now is the crypto market and i think that's why you're seeing a lot of scammery but uh yeah generally it's interesting because yeah you you've seen a lot of things shift um 
you've seen a lot of things shift from like the traditional format of investing even the concept of like safe haven investments being gold and u.s bonds are not necessarily true because generally the reason why that was the case was that the u.s dollar is a reserve currency and it wasn't the reserve currency only because of like Bretton woods and gold reserves and like you know the fed and blah 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 and it was mostly also because like of the petrodollar so essentially that was because every country had to trade oil with the u.s dollar now that they don't do that anymore over the long term, I'm uh, sorry, in the short term, a lot of countries still do have dollar denominated debt. So when the US central bank increases interest rates, it provides a lot of pain to other countries because now their debt servicing becomes more expensive and they demand more dollars, which is good for the US. But over the long term, the thing is, as more dollar denominated debt starts happening in like, let's say the Russian ruble, or the Chinese yuan, or any or like, you know, anything to that extent, right? Um, you're going to see market shift there as you see, you know, creditors basically move to that market because obviously, you know, there's more commerce happening there and yada, 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 yada. Um, so I, I do think we're seeing a shift in things, but I'm not even really going to get into that. But uh, yeah, you know, investing is generally changed. And I do think people have to really uh, re-educate themselves on strategy and uh, um, understand what they're comfortable in terms of taking on and also understand that like you have to learn some really crazy ish right now because um, it's honestly painful how quickly technology is changing and in my opinion I am very bullish on specifically blockchain technology decentralized and decentralized finance because what's going to happen quickly is that your traditional financial institutions are going to have to quickly implement blockchain technology because of the efficiencies it provides. And if they're not able to implement it fast enough, the black market essentially will be able to um, capture a lot more business than what like banks are able to provide. Traditional financial institutions are able to provide right now, right? Uh, because you are seeing a lot of attrition, not just in equities, but also what's happening in terms of central banks having to increase interest rates is sort of like it's causing a lot of people to have to find alternative ways, for lack of a better term, to make money. And if there's still a lot, a lot of money being made in crypto markets, if I'm very putting it very simply, people will start investing there, period, right? So I think what's going to happen on a regulatory manner is that you're going to see two things happen, over-regulation and under-regulation. So I think um, on an over-regulation end, because a lot of regulators do not have the brain power or the brain trust, because people who make money in crypto don't go to the public sector, they go to the private sector. They're going to basically make policies that don't make sense and cause a lot of inefficiencies in either crypto trading or crypto custody or anything to that extent. And that's actually going to drive a lot of business to the black market. And I think honestly, it's going to be more so considered the gray market for how much people use it, right? Um, and the other thing that's going to happen is complete under-regulation or no regulation at all um, in certain areas because they're not going to understand how to completely like regulate things like DAXs, which are decentralized exchanges. You can tell Canadians that they can't trade on an exchange all you want, but if it's like on offshore DAX, there's absolutely nothing you can do to enforce that, right? So I think what you see happen is that you see like banks, broker dealers, traditional people that like or work with SROs like IROC, right? They're going to have to quickly implement uh, like crypto and blockchain technology into their strategy just so they make sure they don't start losing money from clients, right? To be quite honest, right? Because I think things are going to get quite wacky over the next, let's say, five to ten years. But that's just my opinion. Um, and I do I think that there's going to be another bull run in crypto. Um, and, I, and, I, and I think that's based on things that people may not be thinking that are bullish for investing, but I think are quite different. 
Um, but yeah, so that's just like my spiel. I should also uh, finish by saying, um, and I also need to, I'm going to add a segment before this too. Um, actually, you know what? No, no, no. I'll, I'm just going to add it to the front. Of it. 